0: Hello and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be bringing you the best of Scottish
1: folklore.
2: Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. Welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. This week we'll be looking at local tales from different regions around Scotland. Um, I'm David.
3: Hi, I'm Lindley and I'm a contributor at Folklore Scotland.
4: Hi, my name's Graham and yeah, I'm a contributor Folklore Scotland.
2: I grew up in rural Dumfries and Galloway. Dovries and Galloway is a large county with a variety of folklore. To the north you have the miners' towns, in the east the borders, uh, whose folklore we now can relate to, Walter Scott, um, and in the west is the crossing to Ireland. It's here that that the folk tale I want to talk about stems from. The connection between the Mull of Galloway and Ireland is an ancient one, and through it a great many tales were shared, which is why the story I'm about to talk to you about has an Irish counterpart. The Legend of Heather Ale is a story I first heard on a camping trip back when I was at school. I had just passed a stone carving uh, in which there was Pictish runes. It was a modern piece, but they'd uh, done it in a, in a cultural celebration of the Pictish connection with the southwest of Scotland. Um, and at the point of walking past it, the scout leader I was with began to recount the tale of Heather Ale. It sticks with me largely because it was the first proper full folktale I'd heard. Um, and partly because it's gruesome conclusion. The story goes that an Irish king, or in some accounts the Romans, were plundering Scotland, killing all of the Picts. <laughs> they had unseated the clans and taken their lands, but they still sought one thing. That thing most prized the Picts, the recipe for heather ale. It goes that the last two Picts who knew the recipe were captured near the Mull of Galloway. It was a, furth- it was a father and son... Both swore never to tell the recipe to anyone, but a fellow picked. The Irish king, however, thought he could get them to speak. He first spoke with both individually. The son said he would never tell, but the king saw it in him something that could be broken, but didn't act yet. The father stated he could tell the king the recipe if he killed his son, for he hated him greatly. The king, thinking this the easier option, duly killed the son. The father was then led to the Mall of Galloway, where he said he must gather the right heather. When he reached the top of the cliffs he threw himself off dying in the fall with him the recipe for heather ale the father had seen the weakness in his son and known that his son would inevitably break and sought to silence him the irish seem to have a similar tale as i mentioned earlier they have a counterpart and but in their case it was a viking settlement and and the vikings were holding the recipe of this heather meat um yeah, it was still an Irish king in this tale that was seeking to reclaim the Irish lands, killing off the Vikings, destroying the settlement till it was the last two and the same scenario unfolded. The concept of this heather mead is something that does appear in historical accounts and so it seems to be a real thing and the Vikings um, were notoriously precious of this recipe which is why there doesn't seem to be any kind of written accounts of what actually was in it nowadays. Um, in addition to the, the kind of ancient tales, the crossover between Ireland and Scotland, there was a slightly more modern account by Robert Louis Stevenson, who I've just been reading in a book I've been reading at the moment, was the descendant of a lighthouse architect, as well as being the famous writer. So he has an interesting background. Um, and he wrote a rather kind of epic poem of the tale, um, probably influenced somewhat by Walter Scott's take on the, the folklore genre in Scotland. Um, and it's something I would definitely recommend having a read of. It does a brilliant job of summarising the drama of the, of the story. And that's my, my local folklore story, the, the one I can associate most with home and um, something I heard growing up.
3: Makes me very curious to try some mead. I made some this past year turned out pretty well but it'd probably be even better if it was an ancient recipe
2: well there has been a couple of companies that i've seen trying to make like a heather ale style thing and it was traditionally heather ale in the scottish tale but um looking at the irish one they have written it in the the gaelic and when it translates across it is it's a mead style thing instead which i think makes more sense when you think of kind of like the heather kind of vibe in a a thing you think it more like honey heather that Mm. kind of thing and i can see it being more in a mead but i definitely want some
4: (laughs) i was just going to say any story about ale heather otherwise is going to get my vote (laughs) (laughs) but uh so williams brothers do a beer called heather ale
2: Ah,
4: which ah. is sort of based on the story i think
2: have you had it is it any good
4: I've, I've never had it, no. Oh. I know my flatmate has had it because I've seen it and that's from ah. some ragamble, So,
2: Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. No, I had a check, but it's uh, yeah. I think it's based on the story and the fact that it it's this closely guarded secret and they're yeah. releasing their take on it. <laughs>
0: it's like mm-hmm. an ancient version of Iron Brew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ancient version of Iron Brew.
2: <laughs> it's funny that that is my earliest one that I remember as well. As- <laughs> I've said it's because of the gruesomeness and I think it was the first full story I've heard, but really it's because there was booze involved. That was the <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm pining after header Ale from a young age.
2: Yeah. <laughs> indeed. It was quite interesting because that story as well, it was one uh somebody we were working with at one point, I can't remember who it was, but they were putting together a, a thing to do with Different folk tales, all linked with food from across the world, and it's interesting to see the amount of different tales that have lasted generations that are linked with food or drink and the such like. It's not quite as dramatic stories as lands rising and falling, although in this case it kind of is. But <laughs> the thing that's retained is the the drink or the food stuff for the.
0: Well, apparently, taste is like quite closely linked to our memories, so it might be something to do with that.
2: Yeah. More of a representative of a time period rather yeah. than it being about the actual thing itself.
4: See the most interesting thing about this story, I thought, is that there's obviously there's so many stories that are joint like Irish and Scottish, like slightly different versions, but it's the same story on either side. But this one, you know, I think most of the ones I've heard sound like Irish stories that have mm-hmm. come across here. You know, it's all about like Finn McCool and you know fairy, all those things. This one sounds like a story that sounds more Scottish to me, that's gone the other way.
2: Yeah, I I was kind of on the fence as to which side this one stemmed from originally because they've both got compelling elements and I suppose part of the nice thing about folklore is that we'll never really know which one was the right one because it's all open to interpretation a lot of folklore. Mm.
3: The best things in life I think have a little bit of mystery.
2: Yeah, it's the magic element.
4: When it comes to stories, Edinburgh is packed full of them. So it's ghost stories, brutal murders, daring escapes, just about anything you can think of. This is one story from local folklore. It stands out from the rest, to me anyway, since it, it even helped shape the, the layout of the city that we know today. So think of it like half of Edinburgh's origin story. You know, as the legend would have us believe, without this there'd be no palace, there'd be no Royal Mile, there'd be no Holyrood Park story goes right back almost 900 years to 1127, during the reign of King David I. Uh, back then, what we know as a spacious grassy Hollywood park at the foot of Arthur's Seat was actually a royal hunting forest. David liked to spend most of his time there, while staying at Edinburgh Castle up on the cold and drafty rock. Uh, you know, it sounds like a pretty normal thing for a king to be out hunting in those days. But this day, it wasn't just any old day. This was... The Feast of the Holy Cross, and really, David should have been in church with everybody else. So he'd ignored the warnings from his pesky priests and headed out with his bow and his spear. At some point, while stalking this majestic white stag, the king was separated from his hunting companions. It was only when he stopped in a clearing, listened to the quiet woodland around him, that he realized he was all alone. And suddenly, out of nowhere, The white stag bursts out of the undergrowth, startles David's horse, and it bolts off between the trees. Kings lying on the ground, in amongst the roots and the leaves, with a very angry stag staring back at him. His spear lay out of reach, his bow had disappeared off with the horse. The hunter had very much become the hunted. You might think deer are lovely and cute, but a wild stag is a powerful beast. It's not something to mess around with. David was lying there praying for all he's worth as a white stag charges for him with the sharp tines of its antlers bared. Then instead of seeing his life flash before his eyes, the king saw a holy cross appear between the antlers. As he reached out to grab it, the stag stopped in its tracks, panicked and fled. So David marked a spot where a miracle had happened, promised to dedicate an abbey in thanks to the holy cross or the holy rood as it was known. So Holyrood Abbey grew into the palace of Holyrood House, what we have today, uh, and the forest was then cleared to make the Holyrood Park that surrounds it. So David, he was already known as a fairly pious man, but after the founding of Holyrood, it's kind of like he went into overdrive. So he starts founding or improving abbeys all over the country, Jedburgh, Cambus Kenneth, Newbale, Melrose, the list goes on. Maybe it's just a story, and David's passion for monastic orders after that day is just a coincidence. But then again, maybe something happened in that forest, something that changed the King of Scots for the rest of his life. But we'll never know for sure. But up and down the Canongate section of Royal Mile, if you look up, you'll still find images of that white stag with a cross between its antlers. So the city still proudly honouring one of Edinburgh's oldest and to me anyway, the greatest stories.
2: I didn't I vaguely heard bits of that story before, but I hadn't heard the whole account properly. I knew like the idea of David and the, the stag originally, but
1: mm-hmm.
2: it was good to hear the whole account through and I didn't know he'd gone on to establish quite as many as orders orders, which I should with him being, you know, my namesake,
4: so <laughs> he had, 'cause he's he'd done a couple before, and then it's just weird that suddenly after that it's this like whole array of different places popping up all over the place or he's you know sort of making ones that there might already be a monastery and he's sort of adding little you know smaller places that are what do you call them like it's like the mother house and there's all these other ones popping up all over the place but yeah he sort of put a lot of money into it
1: i really enjoyed that one i love the ones with the the like animals who are are they actually animals or are they just like a messenger from god or something I just think this storytelling was fantastic. I just wanted
3: to say that. I guess there's nothing like a miracle to uh, jumpstart your your lapsing faith if you're a king, huh?
2: I always find it quite interesting as well, because the tales that I tend to be attracted most to in folklore are the kind of earlier ones with kind of clear Celtic or kind of Pictish origins and things, whereas that one has a very clearly kind of Christian-era values, and I I thought it was a really interesting one as well. It has a lot more kind of engagement in it and Mm -hmm. movement behind it than a lot of the kind of Christian-era ones that I've encountered tend to...
0: I like the David comes back from it cuz obviously it starts with him going hunting on a Sunday and a lot of stories that you see um like the harlers down in I think it's Cornwall they go out and play sports on a Sunday and then they get turned to stone whereas David is like sorry <laughs> I'll I'll fix my ways
4: It's the same with like kelpies are notorious for taking people on a Sunday when they should have been in church so it's yeah it's like a common Theme, I guess.
2: I think a lot of the ones that were older tales were then interpreted into Christian-based tales, whereas this one was one that I think seems like it definitely started as one because of the whole kind of abbeys coming out of it. I just like the image of the, the stag with the cross and everything as well. It's a,
4: a very pretty image. There's a couple of different, depending where you read or you know, whose account you listen to, there's a couple of different ideas about what the cross between the antlers was. Whether it was like a physical cross or whether it was you know the light coming through the leaves like formed a cross and blinded the stag and that was the image that David saw and, and all that But
0: It almost sounds kind of like um like your typical saint story almost that you would find
1: uh, I was just wondering would anyone else kind of draw parallels like I've definitely heard stag stories before the white heart in the uh, tales of King Arthur I think it was is that like a common theme would you say in uh, folklore like the stag as a symbol of kingship really or divine rule
4: I don't know I mean that's interesting I hadn't heard about a white heart in the Arthur stories but then the sort of the Arthur stories that I hear about are you know Arthur being based around about Edinburgh you know the, the oldest accounts of Arthur from that sort of era and it's only well after the time of King David that they sort of got turned into this English you know fairy tale story. So it could well be that that's where it comes from.
0: Yeah, so the White Heart in Arthurian legend typically represented the quest for spiritual enlightenment in a way it almost kind of represents a living counterpart to the Holy Grail. Um, It was always notoriously hard to capture and it also represented the beginning of a quest. It tended to show up right at the beginning of the story and its presence would kind of round up the knights of the round table to leap into action so yeah it does kind of represent the beginning of david's spiritual enlightenment and it also highlights the kind of beginning of his spiritual quest uh hearts especially stags do have connotations with like rulers and kings because of the rantlers
3: i liked what you mentioned about the holy grail i think there would be a lot of continuity with christian kind of myth and symbolism there um, as you say, with the white the whiteness of the stag being kind of the purity of that, and then also the the chase, right, the hunt for the Holy Grail, as as it were. I think there may also be mentions of a white heart um, in relation to kind of fairy and the lands of fairy and kind of leading wanderers off or. Um, acting as kind of a gateway or a marker of that. I'd love to kind of dive into this more in depth as well, but I think there's a lot of um, kind of interconnected layers of symbolism there. All right, so my tale is called The Dragon of Dundee, and it's actually the story that brought me to Folklore Scotland. I saw some of their, they had posted a wonderful rendition of this story and some illustrations in a local uh, coffee house, and that's how I met these guys, so it will always have a special place in my heart for that. And it was also the first local tale that I came across when I first came to Dundee, and I wandered around the city center and I saw that amazing bronze dragon sculpture there in the center. So, this story is sometimes also called The Tale of Nine Maidens, as it involves a farmer and his nine lovely daughters. So, legend tells us that a hard-working farmer tilled land in the town of Potempton, just north of Dundee. One hot summer day, exhausted by his work, the farmer asked his eldest daughter to fetch some water from a local well. Time passed slowly, but she did not return, so the farmer sent her next younger sister after her. I think you can see where this is going. But the day dragged on, and neither girl returned, and still he had no water. So he sent his third eldest girl after the other two, and then his next daughter after her. Soon it was growing dark, and all nine of his daughters had gone to the well and not come back. Still exhausted, and now thirsty and worried, he made his weary way to the well after them. A horrible sight met his eyes as he came over the hill's crest and looked down on the well. Crimson blood pooled around the bodies of his nine beloved daughters, and a cruel dragon wove his cunning body between them, leering with red teeth. Maddened by fear, the farmer ran, screaming his anguish to the heavens, but it was his neighbors who answered. Several villagers ran to meet him on the road, and soon most of the town was gathered to hear his gruesome tale. Righteous anger filled their hearts, and the farmers, farriers, blacksmiths, and other good folk found what weapons they could and made for the well. The group was led by a brave man named Martin. He had loved one of the farmer's daughters, and the thought of leaving her murderer alive was more than the youth could take. The dragon saw the vengeful mob descending upon him and fled even faster than the farmer had. But Martin's resolve hardened and he pursued the beast, club held high. Soon he caught up with the fell serpent. In the blink of an eye, he was upon him, landing blow upon blow across the creature's scaly hide. The other villagers came panting up behind and seeing that Martin was tiring and the beast still snapping and writhing, they called, Strike, Martin, strike. And so he did. Martin slew the dragon and the place where he fell was called Strike, Martin. And then Martin. The ground is marked with a stone depicting their struggle. So the legend of his bravery in facing tragedy and fear survived the centuries. And you can go now to what is Craigall Hill and see the Pictish carvings on St. Martin's stone. And there are also still many local places and streets which still bear, bear the name
1: Strathmartin. I can't believe the father didn't just let one or two daughters go, he let all nine. <laughs> don't just make the same mistake once, make it nine times just to be sure. <laughs> Better to be extra, extra
2: sure. How lazy was this dad that after the third or fourth? He didn't just go by himself.
1: That is
4: exactly what I was thinking.
1: Like, this is either a very
4: lazy father, or someone who's just enjoying like peace and quiet, or you know, just didn't like his daughters very much. This
2: is a story that I have done a lot of work on in the past because we've had a very long in development storytelling travel app this <laughs> this is may at some point get finished but um this was one of the the routes that were being developed for it because i have a keen interest in folklore that is tied to physical locations and this one is tied to a whole route of locations and we actually got down to the point of going around all the different areas where this is meant to have happened so we went to the site of where the well had been, it's now just a little burn running between some fields, but um, there's records from Victorian times that showed the well was still standing then, but the farmer being so discontented with all the tourists wandering through his field and destroying his crops knocked it down, and it's now just a kind of natural water spring, but it, it was kind of a lot of the thing back then of the Victorians. They liked the tales, but didn't so much care about the actual heritage of the items, so they knocked a lot of the bits down, and but if you go up to the Bell Dragon Woods, still there, and that's where the, the marshes were in the story, where mm-hmm. they kind of had the, the struggle there. And as Linley mentioned, there's the, the Pictish stone as well. A bit further up the way from the two other sites, it must have been a, a several mile struggle between them. <laughs> Quite a, a bit of a distance covered, but <laughs> um suppose if it had wings, you never know. Yeah. Um, and the one on the stone, they've got the actual carving of a long snake down it on one side. But it's brilliant to see the, the tangible links and that stone especially is quite an impressive one. I think it's worn a lot recently. A lot of the images back from Victorian times of the stone shows it in a, a significantly better mm-hmm. condition, but it's worth a little look. It's a, an impressive piece. Yeah. And another counterpart stone to that one that was meant to, I think, represent another part of the myth. I can't remember the exact part of it, but it was in St. Martin's Graveyard back before its kind of current incarnation and it's now in the McManus Museum if you wanted a less long walk from the town centre to see a <laughs> link with it.
1: <laughs> I was wondering then, like, during your research, did you come across any like descriptions of the dragon? Is it quite faithful to the um, statue in Dundee?
3: I actually didn't, Roshin, I'm, I'm not sure. There was not a lot of specificity, but when it comes to dragons, there's a huge amount of variance on what that actually means. Uh, for example, there are those purists that say that a dragon can only be one with, that has four legs and two wings, versus a wyvern, which has two wings and two back legs. So take that for what you will. Also the whole serpent worm thing, where it has maybe two legs, but in the front, and then it's just a snake. So it's, it's really kind of hard to say, but uh, whatever it was, it was capable of eating nine people. So we'll, we'll go with that, I guess. <laughs> and scaring one very lazy or, uh, yeah, lazy or sad farmer. I like to hope he just wanted some peace and quiet and he wasn't he didn't hate his daughters, but it's hard to
2: know. I think a lot of the, the Scottish folklore tends to refer to the, the serpent as a whole and it's later been developed into that kind of mm. idea of dragon now. But it definitely so like the worm of Linton is another one to do with a large serpent where yeah. there was a battle with and in that one there is historical link, then the actual um peerage role for the first baron of the of Linton I think it is um, it says in why he was awarded the peerage for uh, slaying a giant serpent or a monstrous serpent. So,
4: The Warmer is the War of only one that I've heard of that most people genuinely believe happened. But they're like, you know, it, it could just be this giant snake. Because people were bringing back like menageries
1: from everywhere. Mm. And I think it was either this giant snake or some sort of crocodile style thing, which to the people that lived there were like,
4: this is clearly <laughs> like some sort of dragon. But this is the one the one at Dundee I think like I used to go to Dundee all the time as a kid and walk past that statue of a dragon and only last year did I find out what it actually was like I just assumed it was something out of the beans of like the you know da- dandy statue and stuff like that and I was like I don't remember that edition of the beano pretty cool dragon
0: there's also um a couple of dragons in the Dundee coat of arms which is really cool. I find it fascinating that the villagers just let Martin slay the dragon alone. They kind of they, they encouraged him. Uh they were like go, and, you know, slay the dragon, but they didn't help him. Why?
1: <laughs> they're supportive, but they're not brave.
3: I think it sounds less cool also you know, a single hero valiantly defeating the beast versus, like, a bunch of angry people just kind of trampling him
0: doesn't have that heroic ring somehow. Then I wonder how big this dragon was. Like, we chatted about, it could be anything from a crocodile up to a dragon with four legs and two wings. So I wonder if it was maybe just a crocodile.
4: It ate nine maidens.
3: To be fair, it didn't say he finished them. So he could have had, like, a bite here, a bite there.
4: That's, That's true. It's just, you know, Creating is like piecing. It's meal yeah. prep. Meal prep for
2: I like the idea that yeah. the rest of the villagers just joined for the drama of watching it. because <laughs> nothing much was going on. It's like, it's like, on you go, Martin, we'll just stand over here.
1: The you- how else would it change the name of the road as well if it was a Strathmartin Strike Martin? But if the villagers kicked <laughs> the snake to death. Weirdly,
4: this a couple of stories I read had this had the, the dragon giving this, like, final speech, which makes absolutely no sense. That it's He said he was tempered at Pit, dragged at Baldragon, stricken at Strike Martin, and killed at Martin Stone. Which doesn't make any sense, because none of those names would have existed before the dragon. He's just like, I'm going to create my own legacy and name all these places, so you don't forget me.
0: What no. power move! Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, a charity that seeks to tell the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at www.folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Your hosts today were David, Graham and Lindley, but they were also joined by myself, Rasheen and Mila for a discussion. If you want to hear more stories from Scotland, be sure to check out Graham's Instagram page, Scotland Stories. The link is in the show notes. Many thanks to Lindley for providing this episode's artwork. You can find Lindley's website and social media in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.